0: very much, praise team. That was just a very, very special and excellent time together. And as always, we are so very, very grateful. Well, today is the last day on the life of Joseph. And it is not surprising that we would end with the theme of his whole life. If there's any life that demonstrates the sovereignty of God, it is Joseph's life. God revealed to him that he had a plan for his entire family and that Joseph had a very unique position and a key role in that plan. And Joseph believed God's word, didn't he? And through the ups and downs, the reversals, the many trials that he went through, He trusted in the sovereignty of God. If you were to define God's sovereignty, how would you define it? Well, this week I came across, I think, one of the best definitions that I have ever read myself of the sovereignty of God, and let me read it for you. God's sovereignty concerns His absolute rule and control over all of creation God rules absolutely over the affairs of men. He sits on the throne of the universe as Lord. Everything that happens comes about because He either directly causes it or consciously allows it. Nothing enters into history or could ever exist outside of history that does not come under the complete control of God. That is just a tremendous, tremendous definition. Now, we cannot fathom everything about this great truth, but it is a very practical truth for our lives. Two of the most influential pastors who ever lived were John Calvin and Charles Spurgeon. Both of them founded their ministries on this great truth. They both went through incredible and difficult and painful trials, the likes of which most servants of God do not have to face. And I want you to notice what they said about how practical the sovereignty of God is for the believer. First of all, here's Pastor Calvin. It is a most blessed thing to be subject to the sovereignty of God and to rest in his control over all things. And then listen to Pastor Spurgeon. When you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. Today, as we conclude the life of Joseph, let's do that very thing. Let's lay our heads, as Joseph did, on the pillow of God's sovereignty. Now, as you open your Bibles to the last chapter of Genesis, Genesis 50, we're going to notice today in the passage that three times Joseph mentions God. We'll be looking at verses 15 through 26. And as we look at these verses, you're going to see three times... Joseph mentions the name and the work of God. And each time he mentions God, we learn a comforting truth about the sovereignty of God. And so today, let's once again come to the feet of our teacher, uh, the man of God, Joseph, and let, us, let him teach us just how practical and helpful and comforting the sovereignty of God is. Would you pray with me for just a moment? Lord, uh, we're so grateful that you rule and reign on the throne of this universe. We've just been singing that you alone are worthy, you alone are holy, you alone are deserving of our praise, you alone are merciful and mighty. No one else deserves to sit on that throne but you. And Lord, while we cannot understand uh, all the things that you have ordained, the things that you have determined, the other things that you have consciously allowed, we're so grateful that we can be subject to your sovereignty. And so thankful that when we are going through a trial, we can rest our head on the pillow of your sovereignty. Thank you for teaching us through the life of your servant Joseph. Help us now to learn the things of God through him once again. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen. Now I want you to notice the first very encouraging and blessed truth we learn about God's sovereignty is that God is sovereign over our guilt. Look at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, and we see his great funeral in the first part of chapter 50, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. We are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Now, there are two things here that are very, very clear. Number one, the brothers do not think Joseph has truly forgiven them, do they? When they say, perhaps he will hate us, the word there in verse 15 is the same word for Esau's grudge that he bore against Jacob. And it is often the case that with the death of someone who is influential, that old animosities break out after that person has died. I know a family that as soon as the mother passed away, uh, the four siblings split into two groups right down the middle. The two older brothers ended up pitted against the sister and the youngest brother. It was all over the inheritance. There were accusations and recriminations that were made. And it was very, very clear, even at the visitation for the funeral that bad feelings had existed for a very long time. And now, very sadly, that the mother was dead, these bad feelings amongst the siblings erupted into open hostilities. And now that Jacob is dead and can no longer run interference for the brothers, they fear Joseph's revenge. But Joseph had forgiven them, hadn't he? He had forgiven them. In fact, 17 years earlier, he uttered these very words in Genesis 45, 5 and 7. And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So don't be distressed nor be angry with yourselves. This is about a clear statement of forgiveness as you could find, isn't it? Of course it is. Why does Joseph weep when his brothers now come to him? Why does he weep? Well, after all the love and kindness that he had shown them over 17 years since the reconciliation, they did not believe him. And he wept because they were so fearful of him, they concocted a lie about something that their father allegedly said to them so that they might be protected from him. And then I think the greatest reason why Joseph wept is because the estrangement between him and his brothers was not fully healed after 40 long years very, very clear, the brothers did not think Joseph had truly forgiven him. You know what else is clear here? Brothers had not forgiven themselves, had they? Isn't that clear? The brothers had not forgiven themselves. They were plagued by guilt feelings. One Bible teacher has said what we read here is very realistic psychologically. The nagging voice of their conscience refused to be stilled. Another Bible teacher has said this, The power of guilt sometimes makes us incapable of believing that anyone could ever forgive us. I read about a man who said this, God may forgive me, but I cannot forgive myself. I have a suspicion here this morning. There are many of us, if we were honest, would say the same thing. Pastor, I can't forgive myself. I live under a burden of regret and guilt. What do I do? Did you notice Joseph's first reference to God in verse 19? Joseph said to them, Do not fear. For am I in the place of God? You may know that uh, the Old Testament was translated into Greek in about 250 B.C. It took about 70 years to translate the entire Old Testament into Greek, and so it's called the Septuagint, which is the Greek word for 70. Seventy. It's interesting, here at verse 19, the Septuagint does not uh, translate this as a question, but instead translates it as an answer. Listen to how the Greek Old Testament translates verse 19. But Joseph said, be not afraid, for I am God's. Be not afraid, for I am God's. Brothers and sisters, that is very helpful. Joseph is a man under God's authority. He knows it's God's right to forgive or to punish. Doesn't the Bible say this? The Bible says, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus in Mark chapter 2 said, the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins. And the whole Bible teaches us that God has devised a plan whereby He can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And since salvation is God's plan... And it satisfies God's just demands, then it is His verdict about sin and His verdict alone that counts. And Joseph understood that. He said, I am God's. I am under His authority. And it's His authority that counts. A number of months ago, when I was at the Marquette Branch Prison, after the service, a prisoner came to me, very gifted pianist, very sharp, bright man. When he would speak in chapel, as sometimes he did, he was very effective in sharing devotions, You look at a man like this and you say, what in the world could you have done to end up in a place like this? And one day after the service, he came to me and he said, I feel like I have repented and I have turned my life over to Christ, but he said, my family will not forgive me. And he said, when I get out of prison and I am released, they want nothing to do with me. What would you say to him? I only had a few moments. I did the best that I could. They are on a very tight schedule after chapel. But I've thought a great deal about that since then. There are two things that I would say. And I say them to you today if you cannot forgive yourself. Or you have others who will not forgive you. Number one, sometimes it takes time to forgive and to trust someone again. You see, God knows our hearts and He knows our sincerity, but the people who may have been hurt by us do not. And so give them time. Give them time. And then do this. Show to them what the brothers showed to Joseph. Despite what most people believe was a fabrication about what their father said to them, what they said here does reveal, I believe, their true hearts. And I want you to notice what they showed to Joseph. Number one, they admitted the gravity of their wrongs. Look at the first part of verse 17. Please forgive the transgression of your brothers, their sin, because they did evil to you. Do you know what those three words are? Transgression, sin, and evil? Those are the three main words in the Old Testament for sin. This is the only place in the Bible where all three of those words are found in one verse. These men did not excuse what they had done. They didn't try to explain it away. They admitted the gravity of their wrong. Secondly, as for forgiveness, twice in verse 17, they said, please forgive. And then thirdly, they showed remorse by humbling themselves. Look at verse 18. His brothers also came and fell down before him, and they said, behold, We are your servants. They humbled themselves in front of him. Now, we don't have to grovel like this in front of those we have wronged. But we need to show our sincerity by an attitude of humility. And I will say this, over a period of time, you show these three things You show that you understand the gravity of what you've done. You ask for forgiveness. You demonstrate true humility. These are the three acts of repentance, are they not? Admitting our wrong, asking for forgiveness, showing that we have been humbled by what we have done. Those are the three acts of repentance. And over a period of time, you show those things... And it will often soften the hearts of people that do not want to forgive you. So the first thing I would say is give them time. Here's the second thing I would say. Ultimately, it's God's decision, not theirs. Please hear that. When it comes to the forgiveness of our guilt, it is ultimately God's decision, not people's. God is sovereign over forgiveness. If He forgave us, we are forgiven. Therefore, we should never torture ourselves through unrelenting regret. Isn't it interesting, Genesis begins with two people wanting to take God's place. Genesis ends with one man refusing to take God's place. What an insight that is if Joseph refused to take God's place and say, I will decide whether I forgive you or not, then we do not want to do different and refuse to forgive ourselves. God is sovereign over our guilt. Some of us here today desperately need to hear this. And I say it again to you. God is sovereign over your guilt. If He forgave you, you are forgiven. Let's notice another comforting truth. Number two. God is sovereign over our pain. Look at verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today, almost the exact words we read from Genesis 45, 17 years earlier. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Here's Joseph's second reference to God, and you know what it deals with? It deals with his own pain. May I ask you this question? How do you forgive such wrongs? How do you forgive those wrongs? You see, if they needed relief from a guilty conscience, what Joseph needed relief from was bitterness, bitterness, resentment retaliation, revenge. And what helped him? It was the sovereignty of God. Look very closely at verse 20 for a moment. If you've never seen this before, it will help you very, very much in your own pain. The word meant, you meant evil against me, it means to plot or to scheme, to plan against someone. So clearly this was not accidental, but intentional. It's one thing for us to say, okay, you know, it was an accident. I forgive you. But what about when it was on purpose? What about when it was intentional to harm you? How do you forgive then? Notice the next phrase. God meant it for good. The word meant is the same word there. Plot, scheme, plan for good. It is a perfect, exact parallel. The brothers were scheming, plotting intentionally for Joseph's harm. God was planning, scheming, plotting, if you would... For Joseph's good. Did you notice this? Two sides are plotting. Two sides are plotting. People may plot to harm us, God is plotting to do us good. May I ask you a question? Who's going to win? Who's going to win? Joseph knew God would win. God's purposes would prevail. Now listen then to what's being said. God permits people to do evil to us because He plans to take that evil and turn it around for good for those He loves. Let this blow your mind for a moment. God permits people to do evil to us because He plans to take that evil and turn it around for good to those He loves. Do you know this is why we ultimately cannot be bitter? If God is using wrong for us and we are bitter, we are rejecting His plan. Think of that. If God is using wrong for us and we are bitter, resentful, revengeful, and retaliatory, we are rejecting God's plan. We always have two choices. We can focus on the evil or the good that God intends. Ultimately, what this says then is bitterness is a lack of faith. That's what it is. If we know that God overrules the wrongs that are done to us for our good, such trust must remove all hate We are not living by faith in the God who loves us. Do you notice what I see here? Joseph is acting like a Christian before being a Christian and what it's like was ever written down. Joseph is already living out truths that the Apostle Paul would not write in the book of Romans for thousands of years. If we were to ask this question this morning, how can I become more Christ-like? Joseph is already living that. And he's living out what Paul wrote in Romans. And look what this entails. Here's how we become more Christ-like. Leave all the writing of one's wrongs to God. That's taught in Romans 12.19. See God's providence in man's malice against you. That's Romans 8.28. Repay evil not only with forgiveness but with good. That's Romans 12, 21. And look at verse 21 here. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus He comforted them and spoke kindly to them." You want to know the only way we can do this? Because we believe in the sovereignty of God. It's because we trust that He controls all things. Once again, we are back to the life verse, really, of Joseph's whole experience, Romans 8.28. Let's read the verse together. It is really the key verse for his entire life. Now emphasized to us again here in the final episode in Genesis 50. Join me as we read it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Pastor Ken Hughes says this, From this we understand that God can have no evil thoughts toward His own, no thoughts of calamity. God never has had an evil thought toward a child of His, and He never will. God never has had an evil thought toward a child of His, And he never will. And Joseph knew this long before it was ever written. Therefore, he could not be bitter. He had to forgive. For some of us who need to know God is sovereign over our guilt, others of us here today, God is sovereign over our pain. It's the only way. It's the only way to live free from it. Here's the last comforting truth, number three. God is sovereign over his promises. Look at verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he in his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Joseph had a very blessed life. 110 years in the ancient world was the ideal length of life. So what this is telling us is God gave Joseph a very full and satisfying life, but he died anyway, didn't he? Death still rules, doesn't it? My mother used to say to me this, Genesis is a very interesting book. It begins in a garden and it ends in a coffin. You ever thought about that? What starts out with such promise in a garden ends in such disaster for the human race. Why this instruction about his bones? I want you to swear to me that you will carry up my bones and you will bury them in the land of Canaan. The key to this command here about the bones is the word visit, found twice, verse 24 and 25. The word visit is a reference to God's intervention, bringing about good for His people. And when Joseph says, God is going to visit you, and He's going to bring you up. That was a repeated repeated phrase recalling Israel's redemption out of Egypt. You know what this is? This is Exodus in a nutshell. The whole book of Exodus in a nutshell. God is going to visit you, and when He does, He's going to redeem you, and He's going to bring you up out of Egypt and he's going to fulfill his promises. Do you know how long it took for Joseph's bones to be buried in the land of Canaan? About 500 years. They're not buried until the end of the book of Joshua. And just in case you wanted to see the verse, here it is. Joshua 24, 32 the bones of Joseph, which the Israelites had brought along with them when they left Egypt, carried for 40 years in the wilderness, carried through all the conquest years, 500 years later, were buried at Shechem in the parcel of ground Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor for 100 pieces of silver. This land was located in the territory allotted to the descendants of Joseph's you know what this is? Joseph's final lesson on faith to his people when they finally buried these bones what would they say? God keeps his promises God keeps his promises. But there's more here for you and me. The Old Testament begins with the birth of Jesus. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, gives praise to God. And look what he says in his praise psalm. Would you read it with me? Luke one sixty eight. read it with me. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. There's the word visited again. Combined with redemption, bring them up. Jesus is the ultimate visitation and the ultimate redemption. The book of Genesis ends in a coffin. Where does the book of Revelation end? Ends in heaven, doesn't it? The book of Genesis ends with disaster, defeat, disappointment. But because God keeps His promises, He sent His Son who visited us and redeemed us. And the book of Revelation ends in heaven. Disaster death and disappointment does not have the final word Jesus does Jesus does And that's why the sovereignty of God is so wonderfully comforting Let's personalize this truth this morning. Let's say it together to each other and to our hearts. Please join me. God is sovereign over my guilt. God is sovereign over my pain. God is sovereign over His promises to me. Let's pray together. As her heads are bowed and her eyes are closed, I don't know which one of these you need the most. But I know this. All of us need at least one. All of us need at least one. And as our eyes are closed and our our heads are bowed, Which one do you need to thank God for? Are you struggling with a burden of guilt, regret, that weighs you down? Would you thank God And He is sovereign over that guilt? Maybe you're bitter, hurt. Somebody has wounded you deeply. Would you thank God he's sovereign over that pain? Maybe you're wavering over the future, your future. Your family's future, the future of those you love. Would you thank God? He is sovereign over His promises. Lord God. Come now and meet us where we are. Take these incredible, amazing truths from pages of Scripture and impress them deeply upon our hearts. May our faith grow. May we rise up and walk more Christ-like as Joseph has shown us throughout his entire life. Until we hear those final words showing your great triumph over all evil, pain, wrong, disappointment, and death. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.